0: So without further ado, let's roll right into our lore panel. Hey, hey, I'm very excited
1: to discuss this episode. So yeah, I can't wait to
2: start this. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Mike. It's uh, wonderful to be joining and uh, wonderful to be joining such great panel guests. I can't wait and to get so, talking about this episode.
1: And So many great haircuts and beards here, like the combo is really, I, complex, know. Right? I have about to it? say,
2: it's definitely <laughs> the follicly challenged up top stream, but you know, strong beard. But this right.
1: part here, uh, yeah, the magical three, number metal. of three.
2: None of us are Numenorians, judging by the genetics on the show.
3: Yeah,
0: that's <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And also on the screen, we have, uh, or joining us is Chris, aka. Philosopher's Games on YouTube. How are you doing,
3: Chris? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Very nice to be here. No, sound is good because we didn't test it. But yeah, very awesome. Very looking forward to yeah, um, discussing this with you guys. It's always a lot of fun doing so.
0: Yeah, your sound is great. Sounds good. So we're all good there. And I'm just going to imagine that you're similarly follically challenged and bearded on bottom uh, like the rest of us here. So that we have a very uniform. It, it panel, seems so similar I... here. Yeah. That's my headcanon. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're this is gonna be a casual conversation, of course. Uh, you know, it's gonna be freewheeling. Feel we feel free to jump in, although I wanna give everybody a chance to to talk. If you know if you do want to jump in, maybe just you know hold your fingers up or something and we'll make sure you get to you so we don't talk over each other too much because we are calling in from different parts of the world and it uh, we, we don't want the lag to result in a lot of crosstalk. So I think I just wanna open up with a very free, just kind of roundtable approach. I wanna hear everybody's just Overall, general thoughts about the episode? What were your feelings about this episode? And the way I want you to do that is pick a word, one word to describe the episode, and then explain why that's the word you picked.
2: So let's go ahead and start with you, Harry. For me, this episode was all about history. History is the word I'd go with. In many ways, this was an episode about the legacy of the different cultures for the Numenorians for Galadriel, for the Sylvan Elves, for the Orcs even, and and for the Harfoots. And I think what was most interesting about it was I've heard a lot of people from the Tolkien community saying it was their favorite episode. So yeah, really good from my perspective.
0: Strider, let's go to you.
2: Well, uh, as uh,
1: Priscilla we just said in the chat, one word, Númenor. We have seen it. It's absolutely amazing stunning wonderful i loved every second of it and you know like waiting for around 21 or 22 years as the first time i've heard about it while i was reading the books and now i see it on the tv and it's every bit of uh every bit as awesome as it should be um seeing elendil seeing that whole the grand hall seeing uh, all those n- nice costumes it looks rich it looks amazing and uh, I would agree also with Harry. A lot of history. All the uh, for me, I enjoyed all the plots. So yeah, but I would just definitely describe it as Numenor. It was my favorite episode easily, just just on the sake of be, uh, it having Numenor. Even though other storylines were also pretty good for me.
0: So, and I see some people doing this in the chat already. But yeah, you in the chat there, give us your one word. Uh, I think we're going to get some good answers
3: there. Chris, how about you? Yeah, I hoped. Um originally I also thought Núminor, but um, that's already gone. So I would go with setup as, and jump a bit onto what um, Harry um, just uh, said, um, because it is definitely an episode, in my opinion, that um, from the perspective of the character of uh, Galadriel is very interesting because the first two episodes were so heavy on, yeah, I don't know, bringing Galadriel from point A to point B. And now we're finally there. And then for Galadriel, it's kind of episode one. Like, now she can finally start her her journey, her character development from here. We have had some great scenes with Elendil, um, which I found, okay, th- this is what this character needs. We hope, hope to see ma- more of that and that we can get Galadriel a bit going into a more interesting uh, direction. So, um, yeah, overall, the episode I also um, kind of liked, I have to admit though there are some details that I would call triggered me a little bit here and there, but from a law perspective, but that is to be expected because it's a very complicated topic to what they have rights and not and so on. So very interesting.
0: So my one word is going to be layered. I think that this episode, more than the others, had almost two different stories being told. One story for the new Tolkien fan and another story for people who will get all the little references because there there are some big reveals for the folks on this panel you know and, and we'll get to those but things that will really mean a lot and we're, our heads are going to be spinning and we're going to theorize about uh halbrand's backstory i think we got a lot of information about that but the nature of the information that other fans who aren't familiar with the books the information that they received is very different and so they're going to there's also mysteries for them there's mysteries for us but they're kind of different mysteries and i love that they're able to toe that line and find a way to be aware of the i think they're doing it deliberately that they're that they're telling a story for regular fans that works for regular fans but there's also another layer to it for the book fans who are going to recognize certain references and that creates a whole new mystery that we're going to be watching so i think that's a very difficult task to do i think they're doing it and i'm i'm hoping that they keep it up because it's uh, it's very very fascinating so something that y'all touched on and why don't we just do this? Kyle, can you put a poll in the chat? I want to know who uh, what everyone's favorite episode is so far. 1, 2 or 3. My my favorite episode is 3. I think this was the strongest one by far.
2: Uh but let's go around. Tell me what your favorite episode was so far. Hearing. Uh for me, episode 2 still wins out because for me it was about the pacing. The pacing of episode 2 was very much my preference. I know some people found it a bit slow um but i found the episodes two pacing was just perfect for me this one in parts there were lots of very good scenes that were given appropriate time but then some things felt a bit rushed to me also i think that episode two set up some of the areas of the story that perhaps i'm more interested in so maybe i'm biased in that way as we get towards the fortune of the rings of power um but yeah episode two is still the strongest but this was a very close second for me strider
1: uh, yeah, I would agree pretty much with Harry with what Harry said. I would just uh, switch number two and number three. Uh, so for me, no, no, the third episode is stronger, not just because of Numenor and how awesome it was, uh, but also because um, we had less storylines. So for me, it felt more consistent. It, it was kind of easier to pay attention to what's happening, to follow through the story with the characters and so on. So if we put Numenor aside, I would still... Uh, probably give advantage to episode three even though it's like a slight advantage but i would still give it advantage because of the way it felt uh, regarding the pace it was just easier to follow i think it was also easier probably for you know just like a casual viewer less things to get used to the second episode was still doing a lot of setup the third one is <laughs> as well doing a lot of setup but still less than the first two so i think yeah it was easier to follow
3: Chris, um, I'm also stand? with Harry on episode two because I like the dwarves and I was a bit skeptical about the um, act of Elrond and there I felt like an episode two. Um, he really shined and showed what he can do. Really impressed with it and was such a joy watching the whole khazad Doom section. There's a lot of cool detail in it. I don't know. It's just I, I spent a lot of time analyzing this particular scene with him in the uh, khazad Doom section. It was Really, a lot of fun for also from, from a nerd perspective, if I want to call it like that. Really fantastic episode. Very, very strong, even though I can understand the point that there were so many storylines, so much setup going on there that um, people might prefer the third episode, which was a lot more uh, straightforward, it's probably the wrong word, but co- compressed, focused, I would say, probably the better word.
0: Well, with that, let's get into the actual episode. So, as a big and beautiful the introduction of Numenor was the episode doesn't start there, it starts with the scene that I actually think was the most visceral and, in terms of cinematic techniques, was the most successful at bringing us into this scene. And that was Arendir being brought into basically an orc concentration camp, an orc work camp. Um, he's being hauled in virtually unconscious, uh, he's in a daze, and you hear the din of screams, children, men, and women screaming, you hear whips, you hear yelling, you hear the clanging of metal uh, from the work camp. It is a very visceral moment. Uh, When he finally comes to, he sees that he is a captive, along with many others, including the two elf friends of his that we have met already in prior episodes. So to his surprise, these orcs have captured a variety of other, uh, other elves. Now, as the episode goes on, it brings us to a conflict that I think is, again, as great as Numenor is, one of my favorite moments, which is a dramatic conflict and fight that is precipitated by the orcs' demand that they cut down a tree. My goodness, what a Tolkienian concept that is, that the elves, that's their Rubicon. That's where they draw the line. They will not touch this tree. And that's where the—that's uh, what causes an actual physical conflict to emerge. And so I just want to throw it to the panel here, Talk about this entire sequence, the whole errand or sequence in general, but I think I want to focus on first, what did you think of the use of the tree as um, a narrative device to create tension and how do you think the that reflects the show owner's desire to tap into fundamental Tolkienian truths and Tolkienian themes? So let's start with Harry.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you've pretty much said it, encapsulated it perfectly. Perfectly there. I think when you go back to those core themes of industrialization versus nature versus the pastoral, the show is already trying to get us there. And what I liked, and I talked about this a little bit on Twitter, was that for even non book readers, they set up Arondir's connection with nature in episode one, I think it was, when he was talking with Bronwyn and she handed him the seeds. And he had that very visceral reaction to her talking about crushing the seeds. And so they'd already planted the metaphorical seeds, Um, but then getting to actually see that, as you said, visceral reaction to the tree, getting when we got that wide shot zooming out from the tunnel and the work camp to actually see this kind of path of destruction across the land, I thought was very impactful to me, and I really felt the emotional weight of that. And I also felt that it was a really effective choice to have when his companion, Methor dying, his response to that is realize that he has to, at some point, put the value of life above the natural world. And it's not something the elves ever want to do. But again, I think it's going back to one of those Tolkienian themes of being forced to make hard choices and being forced to make choices that aren't always perfect solutions. And in this case, he wanted to protect the lives of his companions, the human prisoners. And at a certain point, nature had to be sacrificed, not in a cruel or callous way, but just because it was the only way to protect people and so i really liked that when nature was sacrificed by the elves it was in the protection of life which i think is really beautiful
1: indeed i would agree with uh very much with what you said and i would remind everyone of um what what they said in the second episode i think um that arondir was a grower not a soldier before the war and that's really then hits even harder when he has to do this with uh, to do this scene with the tree, and it's I, I was just very happy with that. Uh, it's definitely it, it hits right in the core one of the key Tolkien's the key themes of Tolkien, and to have this question, oh, that's that tree has been here so, for so long, and they're also passionate about it, and ravion has this like a short speech about that. Great stuff, and the whole the, the only thing, and it's this is the level of nitpicking, the only thing that I had that was kind of problematic with the whole scene was the warg, it was kind of weird, CGI was a bit out of place, but otherwise they really... they showed us orcs, uh, like at at the same time, they managed to hit the balance of um, orcs being absolutely dangerous, brutal, and horrible as they should be, but also vulnerable, the whole... uh, them being vulnerable, With the sunlight that was very well done and they portrayed that they really got that through i I think so at least to the audience uh with how they form the tunnels and what they're doing there and connecting it with all the plot that it goes from this village to this village uh and then to top it all off with that amazing shot at the that awful but amazing shot at the end um, as we see the path of destruction and we can see uh, the line of their tunnel going around, uh, going going to the distance, and the trail of destruction following that tunnel. So I was very happy with the whole arc. Really, really well done. And the way they ended it was, of course, a story of its own, but really well done.
3: Um, yeah, I also um, agree with what was said. I found it very, as um, Strada said, very interesting how they already portrayed, or yeah, introduced um, the, the nature, the, the cl- how close, for example, Aronde is to nature, that he, we learn he was a grower, as uh, was said, and the scene with the with the seeds in, I think, episode one or two, whatever. And um, in addition, from, from the law perspective, we also know that he was like, we learned that he's a Sylvan elf and that different elven clans, um, of course, for example, I would argue maybe no- uh, Noldor would not be so hesitant chopping down a tree, but that is different for the uh, Sylvan elves and green elves and so on. So for the uh, Nandor, let's use this term. And it is um, in this also fascinating that it further expands on, or maybe hints at a concept that uh, Tolkien had, which he called the machine, which is basically a bit about a shortcut to power as Tolkien describes it. So like the one ring is a shortcut to power. You get very powerful if you, if you get it. And right. then on top you have this um, this 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 shortcut to power can lead to to a lot of destruction, especially of nature and so on. I think um, Arondia at the beginning or maybe um, Revion says that they might search a weapon there or whatever. So a shortcut to power, if that makes sense, if they put so much effort into finding a weapon or whatever it might be, then of course it can be seen as a, as a shortcut of power. In this sense, I would describe it as relatively... Tolkienesque, if that makes sense, to to see this, like you see the effort, you see the destruction of nature, you see how they progress, how these um, trench goes far back into the land, and um, you also see how life is treated there by the orcs, and. Yeah, just for that, and then <laughs> all, all basically halts at this at this particular tree and puts this very um, tense scene into it. And there's so many little details, in my opinion, that this um, this particular section does portray the how, how orcs react to sunlight, for example. Retrospectively, also in a way um, establishing why do the orcs use these tunnels? Why just, why don't they just go in the village, for example? I think this also for 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 viewers explains okay they can't just walk by day they wouldn't like it it's not like they explode when they touch sunlight but they definitely are not happy in this situation and um, since mordo at this time is also not covered with with ashes um in this depiction here they of course sunlight is a problem for them and um there's some some other fascinating details. Like if you look at the hands of the orcs, you see they have like normal hands in the camp, but the one orc we have seen in episode two has this weird claw. So maybe he's more in, 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 bred for digging tunnels. I found these, like there's a lot of so many little information and details you can extract from this. Um, I really um, like it. And then the whole setup with, um, at the end, I think it was said also in the um, uh, previous panel um, that, that he grabs like a little... What do you call it—a twig from the from the root—and just um, steps um, <laughs> the orc with it. Like it goes full circle from this perspective. I find that um, <laughs> really really awesome setup there. Um, what they did there. Maybe you can argue about um, the the. I would say the the CGI of the walk was okay, but maybe the design was a bit off. If that makes sense. And um, yeah, so I can definitely see that people might criticize. Um, this um, part maybe also for some the fighting is too much Legolas style. I'm not sure, but um, overall, um, just just from what they set up here and try to establish, I uh, really like this section.
0: Yeah, and I'll say one thing pretty briefly about this section, especially specifically the tree. The thing that really just struck me hard is how ambitious the task the showrunners have given themselves is. They are really making this show about core Tolkienian themes and they're not missing them. I mean, they know what the core themes of Tolkien are and they're trying to use this narrative to touch on them. And it is extremely hard to make a show about abstract concepts like nature versus industrialism without making it like a blatantly obvious metaphor where the visual cues just are so obvious that it is hard to enjoy the underlying plot because you're getting bashed over the head with this metaphor for an abstract concept or you're having the characters just tell you what the concept is in in dialogue or monologue which is kind of lazy screenwriting and they're not doing that even though i think we can step back and analyze the scene and the the metaphors are pretty obvious the visual cues are obvious like you mentioned chris the big tree is blocking the path of their their dig i mean it is a very clear metaphor if you want to look at it that way but when you're in the scene and watching the episode i didn't feel it to be so obvious that it distracted from the actual uh surface level conflict in the scene you know the the tension between the the elves and the orcs so i thought it was very effectively done and i think we're starting to see that you know with other themes and we'll, we'll get to that the the themes that we see with the harfoots talking about uh, you know fate um Galadriel also talks about fate and the choices that you have to make. And there's a lot of themes that are being explored here by the showrunners, and they're, I think they're doing it in a subtle way that is that is pretty effective. So I want to make a mention about the the chat. So our poll here: favorite episode so far. Uh, so most of you were against me. All right, you liked episode two, but the public is with me on this one. Okay, sixty percent like episode three. Uh, but I was
2: episode three, man. <laughs> Well, Listen, uh, I'll, I'll make enemies in the chat. There's no accounting for taste, you know. I mean, if you like it more, oh. right. <laughs> throw down the gauntlet. gauntlet. Yeah,
0: Harry, I don't think you have it in you to make an enemy. You're you're too pleasant. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, And we also got a super chat here. Thank you from Priscilla TV. Comment is: Gil Galad did not believe Galadriel. People are mad at her, but she's trying to save the world. Asking nicely, we'll get her anywhere. I think it, she meant to say asking nicely will not get her anywhere. And I think that is something that we are going to see play out. Uh, Galadriel is single-minded and hell-bent. She knows the importance of her task and nobody is paying attention to her. And uh, I think part of her conflict as the the show goes on is finding a way to get people to listen when they don't want to listen. So thank you for that, Priscilla. Uh, I think let's move on to what this episode was primarily about, which is Numenor and the introduction of all of our Numenorian characters. The first of which I want to talk about is Elendil. So I'm going to set this up a little bit in the books. We learned a lot about Elendil in this episode and the direction they're going to go with him. And when I talked about at the top of this episode, how they were creating mysteries for us, I think Elendil is a bit of a mystery. Where is he exactly in terms of his internal philosophical leanings at this moment? Um, and I don't really know, and we can't place it, and I think that was the, the point. In the books, his father, Amandil, is the lord of Andunier, and their house was descended from Elros through Silmarion. They are of royal blood. Silmarion was the eldest daughter of Elder, the fourth king of Numenor. So if Numenor had followed strict primogeniture at the time, as they currently do, currently in terms of where the show is now, the lords of Andunier would actually have been the king's line. And so they are of royal blood. They continued to be counselors to the king all the way up through Pharazon taking the scepter, uh, Amundil continued to be his advisor until he was forced out basically by Sauron. Um, so the Lords of Enduniae, Amundil, and Elendil continued to be very influential and known figures in Numenor. Um, and Amundil and Farazon were childhood friends, so there's Pharazon certainly knew who these folks were. However, in the show, we get a slightly different take on Elendil. Uh, Farazon acts as though he barely knows who Elendil is, like he had to do some research in his files to remember who Elendil is. You know, if memory serves, uh, he may have a son who's going to follow him into the service. Farazon says he was originally of a noble line, which implies the house has fallen from grace already and refers to Elendil merely as a ship captain. Tarmuriel also acts as though she doesn't know who he is at all. Whether that's true or subterfuge, I think we can debate about that. Uh, And Elendil, if he is in fact of the faithful, he never admits as much uh, on screen in private moments that the audience can see or in conversations with other characters. Uh, Instead, he responds to Muriel's direct questioning about that with very artfully evasive answers. And there even appears to be a schism within his family, with Isildur wanting to defer and go to the western shores, though we're not told what that means exactly in the show, and Elendil wants him to enroll in the Navy so it's not said explicitly but I think there's an implication that the schism in the family is related to them being part of the faithful Elendil maybe not wanting to to loudly or firmly embrace their path past as part of the faithful but I think this is where I want to uh, leave the question for you the panel where's Elendil's heart where's his philosophical heart at where is the heart of Isildur and Anarion and and his family Um, Are they firmly part of the faithful at this moment in the show? Um, Harry, let's start with you again.
2: Yeah, this was probably one of the most interesting parts of the episode for me, because I think it's setting up something that the show is going to excel at in the way that the historical nature of Tolkien's writings about the Second Age was not intended to and could not. And that's, what does this cultural-political divide in Numenor mean to an individual, mean to a family, mean to a culture? And what I mean by that is that I don't know whether Armandil exists in the show. We know Anarion obviously does. Um, But I think the point is, and we know from interviews with Lloyd Owen, that Elendil's wife has recently died. So he's recently widowed. And we kind of got a clue to that even if you hadn't heard that interview when Isildor says to him you know heal your hurts in the same way it has for you referring to going into the navy and going to sea to try and heal his soul and so what i expect we're getting down to here is a much deeper tolkienian theme which is how do characters respond to their own mortality and the mortality of their family members so if you're someone who's recently lost your wife even if you are one of the faithful, even if you do believe in the gift of a Luvatar, it's very hard for that not to shake you in the same way in our own lives if you're religious or spiritual in some way. The death of a family member or a loved one can really shake your faith. And so I think that's where we find Elendil. As for the kids, I think Isildur is very much trying to find his way in the world. What does he want to be? You know, we heard that he, you know, failed out of the Queen's Guard, basically failed out of the Um, the horse, the cavalry school, um, Arian is going down this path, which maybe we can talk about later, but I think is a much, a path which has a much darker end, but clearly she has differing views because the way she talks about Galadriel is with quite a disdain in her tone. As for what Anarion's doing, I actually think Anarion, whether Amandil exists in the show, he is in some ways playing that role he's on the western shores trying to connect with the faithful maybe trying to bring together some sense of community around those those still remaining faithful families and 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 holdings and so I think the journey Elendil's going to go on is how do you heal your heart and how do you heal your faith in the gift of Iluvatar after losing you know your wife and so that's where I think they're going for it um and I'll leave it there. We can maybe talk about the political stuff with Miriel and Fannason uh, in a bit, but that's where I think we are. I think it's a much more emotional journey and spiritual journey than some people might've been expecting. Well, and I want to add something to that uh, and then hand it off to you, Strider.
0: So talk about that, but also is there a political valence to it? Elendil said to Galadriel that we forced Tar Palantir. He's not named, but the King from power. Um, and I, I, Think that his use of we there is interesting it could mean a couple things but the point being that the political situation in numenor is clearly very bad for the faithful already i thought that we were going to come in sort of at a tipping point where things were 50 50 i think it's much more the king's men have the reins. tar already been forced from power so i think i i love your um comment harry that there's a spiritual element to this that flows from the loss of his wife but also i think <clears throat> he wants to protect his family and he's afraid to sp- speak Up, you know the what is it the Harfoot line Nori's mother says about you know uh, the flower that sticks its head up gets snipped and I think Ellendale's kind of um, sensitive to that as well. So Strider around, I hand it off to you there.
1: Yes, so you all made of course as usual very great points. Um, so I would like to just uh, quickly make uh, like sort of a meta parallel with Aragorn in the in the movies. He has a pretty different arc. Than what we have in the books, and they uh, Peter Jackson and uh, his uh, crew, they gave him uh, this different arc, uh, probably to set up more or uh, more of uh, like a stronger character arc because there's like this debate about how complex Aragon is of a character in the books. So I believe they're doing the same with Ellen uh giving him this religious and uh, moral immortality versus immor- immortality. Uh, journey and debate within himself Um, I think that's why they're not putting him as the faithful right from the start like the the clear cut faithful I think he is faithful Uh, there was that wonderful scene when he he talks in Quenya with Galadriel which is obviously a clear nod to what he is and who he is deep inside but still I think they're doing a similar thing with him as they did with Aragorn Um, in the movies where he is kind of um, holding back from his true self in a way. Uh, And it's going to be very interesting to see how they will handle that. But also the divide in his family is very interesting. Um, And the mention of um, Anarion and him being in the west of Númenor. uh, There's a lot of stuff happening there and it's great that we have hints of him uh, because that was one of the questions whether or not Uh, we will see him, though I think none of us really doubted we would see him, it was kind of a fear but we knew that he would be there Um, so it's great that they mentioned him right away, like in the first episode and they're already setting up this uh, divide, and it's a great point that Harry made that we will see here uh, in a deeper way than we could see in Tolkien's writings, because of course he didn't give us a detailed account of hundreds of years of everyday life in Umen. We know all the big stuff that happened which makes it amazing but the, the showrunners obviously have to create the everyday low-level stuff happening in for individuals and um, I think they have set up a pretty good uh, foundation for Elendil's uh, family going forward and uh, yeah, the nod to Tarp volunteer was really good. And I'm also hoping we're going to see um I'm go- I'm hoping we will see Amandil. Uh Mike, as you said, uh, he is hopefully in um at the place where the faithful are and he's hopefully doing some things. And there may be also a divide between two, two of them, which can also then be like another parallel between uh, so Amandil and Elendil, and Elendil and Isildur. Ah, uh, perhaps this relationship relationship is broken. This one is in risk of being broken, so maybe they will play with something like that. And also Yarian, uh, who is basically an X factor because she's pretty much an original original character. So we don't know what's going to happen with her. And that means that there's a lot of a uh, risk for Elendil's family because we don't we know about the three guys what's going to happen with them but we don't know about her. And that means a lot of risk for her as a character, but also for all, all three of them, because obviously she is their uh, family member. So yeah, I think there's a lot of good setup there. I'm very happy with what they did. That, and Alendil was pure gold.
3: Yeah, I think um, a lot, a lot of, of good points were already um, said. Um, I think Elendil, in a way, um, I'm not sure of the English um, saying is, but um, sits between two chairs, something like that. Um, on, w- on one side, he, he says, like, we have to basically leave the past a little bit behind, else we um die. And I think he, he knows that being a faithful uh, might be very unpopular. So, you want to leave this behind, but as we, as we see with the scene um um when he speaks uh, Quenya to uh, Galadriel, um, it, it seems like it is deep inside him being a faithful in a way. So, he, he struggles with that, but he has to the outside give himself a little bit less faithful in a way um i would even say when um, he has this dialogue with miriel it also comes through a bit that when she, when she speaks of treason for a moment that he's really shocked to this like his his core is suddenly shaken because he thinks what he did was absolute right and he <laughs> he stands with that and, and i find that very interesting so he is a kind of torn character on the other side we have this okay um I need to get um my, my son into the in, into the into the Navy, if you want to call it like that. and um I had to ask some people a favor and so on. So he's also very um, he really wants that that his children have have a good time that they don't um, suffer from maybe being connected to 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 this faithful um, past and or heritage in, in a way. That, that I find makes his character and his situation very, very interesting. And um, as Trader said, now the showrunners have to um, really set up everything. Um, how How is their daily life? What was it living there? Like Tolkien just gives very basic um, outlines and like, like beats of what happens. there. only the highlights basically that we know, but what happens in between that is very interesting. And um, so far, I really like how they set up this character. He's, he really tries to not get into trouble, especially he cares for his family and wants them also out of trouble. He knows if he would go full faithful mode, then um, things uh, would definitely get messy for him very fast. Um, that is definitely um, a thing he always has to consider. And I'm very curious how this plays out, especially in the context of Miriel. It was already mentioned. Tar Palantir was in the books the last faithful king of Númenor after a long Um, succession of kings that were definitely not faithful and as a result um, I guess among certain circles in Númenor he was kind of unpopular for it and um, here in the show they portray him even as as now in his later life it seems exiled if that makes sense so how is a medial stance to all of that and I think that is also already an interesting dynamic and I guess in a way at least that's how I interpreted the scenes where there was Um, also very similar to Elendil. Um, So I find this very, very fascinating and very curious where where this will lead. So like this has a lot of potential for conflict and it's very interesting to see how this plays out.
0: Yeah, I love that we're getting an Elendil that is conflicted because I believe that that is not a two in the Akalabeth. There's a statement um, in the Akalabeth that even the faithful were not free from the fears and the feelings that came with being mortal, you know, they, they struggled with the same thing that the Kingsmen struggled with. It's just that the Kingsmen went all the way to the, well, we deserve immortality. Whereas the faithful um, stuck with the the Valar. but they still struggled with those same feelings. And there's a scene between Amandil and Elendil when things get really bad in Numenor and Amandil says, I'm going to pull an Earendil and I'm going to try and go to Valinor and ask the Valar for aid. Elendil says, our, are you sure? I mean, isn't that a betrayal of the king? You know, at this at that moment when things are so dire that Amandil is saying we need to ask the Vala for aid, I'm going to potentially kill myself trying to do this. Ellendil's like, well, maybe this is still you know you're still being disloyal. Maybe that's wrong. So he is conflicted even at that moment in in the books. Um, and I so I think it's very appropriate that we're getting an Elendil that is struggling to find his place. You know, where to where to how to stay true to his faith while also staying true to Numenor. And in all of his evasive answers, he's, I think, answering honestly uh, about his loyalty to to Numenor. You know, Tarmuriel says, Are are you among the faithful? And he says, I'm a loyal servant of Numenor, or something to that effect. Um, And in that moment when he tells Galadriel that Tar Palantir was forced from the throne, he said, uh, You know, he's still the faith of the faithful, and we forced him out of power for it. And he uses the we there. I don't think he participated in that, but. He is still identifying Identifies him as like Numenorian. Numen, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, it's you know, this group that I'm a part of did this thing I don't like, but I, I'm still part of that group. And so he still kind of feels that he is a part of that. So I think that's really interesting and nuanced, especially in this modern world where um, half the time we're so politically divided that if the other side does something we don't want, we say that's, you know, and America, was like that's not my America, you know. And there's that kind of attitude. And Elendil's not taking that approach. He's like, I'm still Numenorian, and we unfortunately did this thing I don't like, and I'm sad about that, but I'm still Numenorian. So it's a very interesting dynamic that I think there's a lot of is meat there to explore as the season goes on. And I, I think now's as good a time as any. We're talking about Elendil, and I think that his plotline is part and parcel with Muriel's plotline. So. Same f- uh, sort of... Go ahead, Strider.
1: If, if, we may, if I may, just before we go to Miriel, though it's it's still actually very connected. You actually mentioned this in as an introduction to this specific uh, topic about Elendil. Uh, his status, the status of the family, they are obviously of direct um, noble line. They are descendants of Eldrus, who was also, also named Roth, which is also very cool, of course. Um, what is happening there? And as you said, Farazon needs to <laughs> again uh, like do a search of his files to see who else is like that. Doesn't it's very strange. I'm I'm not happy with what they're doing here regarding this because like I'm not happy, but I'm willing to see how it will like what they will do with this. Perhaps they have a specific plan why they're playing it out like this. So I'm absolutely willing to see how it plays out. But it's very strange that they are just seem to be kind of a random family, not a random family, but sidelined. Even though, as you said, Amadil was the council of the king, they were a very, very important family throughout their entire history of Numenor. So it's very interesting that they're doing that. They're having this approach. So I just wanted to, yeah, touch on that.
0: Do you think that Muriel actually knows who Elendil is, and he she was playing coy? For the benefit of Farazon? I
1: would I would say that uh, I actually uh, I want to say regarding her, I'm pretty sure that she will at some point. Uh, I think very soon, probably in one in one of the next episodes, uh, end up pro- uh, revealing herself as one of the faithful. She probably I, I think they they are setting up this scene where uh, this like political situation where she again had to do something in order to stay in power, and perhaps by like by doing the lesser evil and staying in power, of course I'm just speculating now, um, she would remain in power and then keep the things a bit better and easier for the faithful, because she's in power, but in order to stay in power, she had to do this thing Well, she pretends she's not of the faithful, she perhaps uh, had a key role in deposing the king, so I think maybe that's something they're doing with her, but I think she is of the faithful and I think she knows who Ellen was.
2: Yeah, I I was going to add to that that I think pretty much everyone at court is playing games, which I love to see, by the way, that is the way for me to build political drama, the best shows that engage in kind of court politics. That's the way you want to do it by there being two faces to everyone—the public persona and the private one. So, for example, Miriel I think is not only playing coy, and you kind of saw it in her scene with Elendil where you know she's saying, "Oh, what does your name mean?" And then as soon as he went for you know, lover of the stars, she immediately went, "Well, you know, it's got a, it's got another meaning, doesn't it?" Which is so clear to me that she knows exactly what's going on. And I think even with on, I don't. One of the things I thought about was when he says, you know of a noble, ha- once of a noble house. I wondered whether the once of was not actually about a deal, but once his house was noble. Because if we are basically at the year, you know, 3,100 effectively for Numenor's timeline, well then by this point, the faithful are very much not considered, you know, okay, yes, they might still be noble lords, but they're seen with disdain. And so I wonder to what extent he's using nobility with the kind of small end there. And then also, I think Elendil himself is also playing a a few games. I think, as as you guys have all pretty much said now, I think he's trying to protect his family. I think he's trying to avoid the political conflict, probably because he's got so much internal emotional conflict he's dealing with in trying to raise these three kids who are all pulling in different directions. And so I love that everyone's keeping things hidden. And as well, Miriel, while she may have been involved in helping topple her father, very clearly she's still in council with him, very clearly, She still has her own game. She's playing her own plans, which I suspect we'll find out in the next couple of episodes are very much more aligned with the faithful's point of view. Um, You know, there's no way she would have referenced the point about the faithful believing that when the the leaves of Nimloth, the white tree fall, it's a, you know, it's a terrible sign. The only reason she'd reference that, obviously she's trying to test Elendil, but also it's a clear sign, both that plus the scene we see when she gets to the top of a tower where presumably her father is, um, there's a lot going on there behind the scenes, so I like that slow burn. I like that everyone's keeping their cards quite close to their chest.
3: Yeah, um, to maybe um, add to this, um, it's it's really hard to tell where Medial exactly stands in this. I would agree. It really seems like she definitely knows more. Maybe she just um, plays this a little bit that she doesn't know what's going on. But um, then some other nuances maybe hint at um, that she really doesn't know who elendil might be which was kind of also triggering me a little bit i mean in theory they are family and (laughs) it's um it should be she should definitely know who elendil is at this time but um it's still um really really hard to say and i think that makes it also interesting for people who know the the books very well because you can't really tell what is exactly going on like i definitely like um as um I think harry said it um when she when she asked about um the the name again. Said, well does it also not mean something else and you definitely know okay she she also knows more about this and um the not faithful people might not be um too keen on knowing too much about uh quenya in details but i um, um, like these, that um elk can mean star or elf it's um it's very uh, fascinating um how this is um, set up, and I'm, I really liked her performance um, and the dialogue. And I hope we we see more more of of, the, of this little nuanced play here and there because it was really um, a lot of fun seeing. I'm very um, I think Miriel is a very interesting character and very well set up um, in, in the show so far, at least how I imagine to um, that, that things will play out. I guess if, with, with a faithful. Um, <laughs> king like her father it didn't work out it brought him to exile and now she has basically i guess to step in and basically again sit uh, between two chairs like she has to to the public maybe she has to really give the not so faithful um um uh, queen regent um and and inside herself she might really be more closer towards her father. We also have the scene where it seems she visited her father in the tower and talked to him, and um, then it seems like she was concerned about that that an elf has appeared. Um, that, that I found, well the elf has appeared. It was it's very interesting um, to to see what is behind that. It. it might really have to do um, <laughs> that. There might be a palantir, um, as we know from the trailers um, in the show, that she, maybe through that they have additional information or not um, but yeah using such an artifact and I don't know being in contact with her father and all these details definitely also lead me to the conclusion that she um, in her heart is definitely um, concerned to what might happen next and um, also potentially more leaning towards the faithful and um, maybe also worried that what, what an elf in Numenor, which seems very unfriendly to elves at this point in time um really has to offer i also found it um in an overall more, more overall meta context if that makes sense very interesting like when we look at the massive time compression i um also read in chat when when does this roundabout play it's very hard to tell like from the main events from the first two episodes it feels like it plays i don't know maybe one thousand years into the second age and um Miriel, though lived um i think she, she was born 3,117, so 2000 years later um that's quite a, a big of a lot of time and i am in my video currently working on i i said something like um it feels like a on this raft made a little time travel into 2000 years of the future meeting Miriel there um <laughs> And in, in a way, that's ironic because Tolkien originally wrote the whole Númenor section as a time travel story because he had a bet with, um, with uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wanted to write a space um, travel story and Tolkien should write a time travel story. And Tolkien somehow ke- went to Atlantis with his story, never never finished it, but found the Atlantis part. So interesting, and out of this Númenor um was developed so i'm not sure if this is like on a very meta level kind of a kind of a what do you call it a wink but um i found this um, also kind of fascinating
0: yeah and i want to cut in real quickly to just remind people that we will have a live call-in portion here pretty uh, pretty soon we're going to reserve some time so um if you want to call in and you actually speak to us on the air through discord they got a voice chat we'll get it through here on youtube and we'll answer your questions or you, you know bring your comments you can tell us that we're all wet on all of our theories or you can you know compliment all of our gorgeous hairstyles whatever you want to do um but uh kyle will uh put the link to the the discord there the live chat feature there at at the top so if you want to get your comments in uh please put them in there and we'll make sure to get you the link um strider i know you had something
1: yeah, so I just uh, wanted to add to what Chris said. Um, it's it, Again, it's very confusing that we, like the timeline compression, it it was necessary, but it does introduce a lot of potential problems and a lot of things that need to be put together from like different, at least like you, ha- you have a puzzle, but you need the smaller version of it and you need to take pieces from it, put aside those that are that you don't need, and just make something of it, so it's, it's tricky. But um, Miriel said an interesting sentence. Uh, she said uh, from the times of my grandfather's great-grandfather that the elves were not welcome in Numenor. So I guess the history of Numenor, that kind of implies that the history of Numenor is, if we judge by how long, on average, a Numenorian king would live for, uh, at least a thousand years. Then, so again, it's, it's just an interesting thing to <laughs> crack our minds on. Uh, what are your guys' theories? Then, like, what do you think? Do you have any idea? Would would you care to try to guess how much time has passed since the fall of Morgoth, since since the founding of Numenor, until this point, based on the information from this episode?
2: Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I would say. It's interesting because essentially what they're doing is they're putting narrative over law adherence, right? You know, they're saying essentially the most important part of Numenor's history happens once Miriel is meant to inherit power and then Pharazon takes power. The most important bits of the elven story are unfortunately all spread out across 1500 years, effectively, you know, a little bit longer if you start with when Anatar first arrives in Eregion. So, I'm just—I don't think I'd even like to try and guess how much time. You know, I would guess that it's at least, you know, fifteen hundred years, two thousand years. Mm. But I don't. But I also don't know that it really—I um, don't know that it really matters within the world. It obviously matters to us if, as we're thinking about the adaptation process. But I think at a certain point, you know, we've been told there's been a long long era of peace, we know that Numenor has risen and started its decline, um, we know that Sauron has been gone long enough, you know, even Galadriel says in the first episode, you know, he's been gone hundreds of years, so we know it's at least that, um, but I think this is also where we get into that they're trying to streamline some things, because obviously, in the first war of the elves and Sauron, the Numenorians come across, save the elves, Sauron's pushed back, then they go back, but all that really happens later is that the elves are fighting Sauron again the new noreans come across they defeat Sauron this time he's taken back in in chains obviously um by Farazon and so I think that's one of those things where we'll see them streamlined because for a TV show it's just probably not that interesting for the general audience to see the same sequence of events happen but you know slightly modified which is effectively. Elves get really badly, you know, kind of um, wrecked by Sauron. The Numenorians turn up, they save the day. And then the only difference the second time is that Sauron comes back. So while I would love for the show to do all of it, you know, my dream would be a, you know, 14 season series where they cover everything. I don't think that was ever going to happen. So I think what they're doing is probably just a bit of efficient streamlining, I guess. And I think that
0: you're right on point that knowing the exact number of years is not important from a narrative perspective all we need to know is there's you know years of peace and kind of know where we are now contextually but the thing that i like about the my grandfather's great grandfather line is it is pretty i didn't double check the the line of kings but i think that is when numenor stopped accepting Elvis ships like i think that is consistent with what you get in the timeline and <clears throat> so it allows them to if they want to in the future do other spin-off shows and that can exist mm-hmm. in a universe that is where the second age is 3,500 years long you know so they've compressed the timeline of the narrative but they haven't necessarily haven't necessarily maybe they will but so far they haven't necessarily compressed the actual time of the second age so they still have all that room to play with in the future if they want to um, I know people have mixed feelings about having you know the TCU the Tolkien Cinematic Universe, but. Um, as long as the uh, future adaptations are good. I'll still want to watch them uh, before we move on. Yeah, from, go ahead Chris. Go ahead uh, uh,
1: So yeah, uh, it, it, it's oh, me. So um, I just want, want to add again uh, the Galadriel also gave us gave us a nice clue. So if we pair what uh, Of course I agree with what you guys said and eventually um, in the end, it's not important to know the exact year but uh, it's we still do have a lot of clues that a lot of time has passed, especially when you take into consideration the fact that Galagios said that there was this long period of time when elves were welcome, and then paired with this Muriel's several generations behind uh, in the past uh, that elves weren't welcome. So that definitely does imply that there's been a lot of time. So it kind of feels like at least 1,500, 2,000 years. But yeah, in the end, it, it's not super important especially for like a casual viewer but you know it's something we all like to think about a lot so yeah it's cool to do that
3: it's a bit interesting to speculate it's a bit interesting to speculate because i feel like about the the time exactly without going um, too much into detail but i think the what we've seen so far feels a bit like it definitely fits into the early um, second age most of the time except for numenor i feel like all what we see numenor so far is only what is very late in the second age from a book's perspective. So I could imagine they would just compress all the Lumino arc into this uh, Miriel, farazon um, Tar Palantir section, and um, maybe we see different stages of Lumino slowly iterate or going through through all this process in a way with, with taking some some wings to to what is in the books, like the grandfather's grandfather and so on. So um, yeah, I, I could imagine. That this works out but of course as a result it's almost impossible to say when it is from the book's perspective
0: before we move on to halbrand and i do want to move on to halbrand because uh before we get too long and i don't want to miss an opportunity to talk about him i i want to know what you guys think the significance of muriel delivering the sword to elendil was because that was a surprise to me that that wasn't already his sword that was a sword that was delivered to him by muriel Due to the exchange of looks, there seemed to be some significance to it, either the symbolism uh, on the hilt or t- what do you think the meaning of that was? Because why would she give him a sword? It has to have some underlying meaning, and that's a
2: bit of a mystery. I, To be honest, I'm going to disagree slightly, which is always fun, um, and say that I, I don't think there's any significance to it. Well, the significance is as he later reveals at the dinner table with Isildur and Arian was that he's been given a promotion to post-captain and so I think the sword is like a badge of office you know in the same way that in the military you might get different epaulets or uh, a rank badge I think it's just like that for the Numenorians. I don't think it's Narsil my personal theory is that Amandil is going to be in the show maybe he won't appear till seasons two or three and as Elendil returns to the faithful fold, that's where he'll inherit the sword. And I know um, some of the very smart people I engage with on uh, Tolkien Twitter often talk about the kind of Arthurian quality to swords in Tolkien. And so I think Elendil taking up the family sword and taking up the sword, which has such a history, is actually what's going to send him on his most important quest, which of course is going to be leading faithful to Middle-earth. Founding the kingdoms and then joining it with uh, Gil Galad and the Last Alliance. So I don't think it's Narsil. I don't think the sword has much um, significance. But maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe I'm dismissing the show too much.
1: No, I, I would actually agree with that. Uh, so I'm not sure w- what the situation is, but I'm pretty sure it's very similar in uh, at least most of the armies of the world. But in my country, when for example when you finish your um, when you finish military academy some of like the best of the best are uh, awarded uh, Saber. So yeah, I, I would agree. The way I read this is in context of the, his later conversation with his family. This is probably something that, um, that just symbolizes his uh, promotion to post, post-captain. Uh, and I also think that this is not uh, Narsil. I know there was, like, there was a lot of uh, debate, I think like two months ago or something, there was uh, there was a bit of news that said that even though the poster of Elendil was with this sword, that it wasn't actually Narsil, and uh, we talked about it in, uh, last week. Um, we mentioned that that the statue, um, that huge statue that has like a sword that has a sword, it looks very like uh, very similar to Narsil from Peter Jackson movies. So I'm also hoping we're going to see something like that, and uh, I would also bet that it is probably. Uh, with Amandil still or you know, maybe it's in, in a possession, but he's still not wearing it perhaps because it's maybe It has some uh, connection to the LC, though it was made by the force, but yeah, so I would agree it's
0: and I think gotta, it's not such a huge. Yeah, and we got a poll in the chat I uh, that people are pretty much split on whether we'll see Amandil right down the center fifty-one forty-eight. but I love your theory uh, harry because it would fit right in i had been assuming that amandel would get cut just to streamline things That uh, Elendil would essentially take his place for narrative purposes or they'd be merged but i love the idea there and it would also put him and anarion together so there would be another sort of growing family dynamic there chris you had something
3: yeah and now to see that this is a very interesting topic i can definitely see um harry's uh, point and Strider's point um I wouldn't even say I necessarily disagree with you because um, it, it, you could, could be absolutely right. My thought process was a bit about um, thinking about the story of Narasil. What do they have the rights for? That's kind of also important. Like for people wondering, um, Narasil is in the books, um, interestingly, a dwarven blade from most likely forged, uh, not, not most likely forced, forged in the first age by um, Telchar, a dwarf. And I assume it somehow landed in the possession of um, the first king of Dorias, Thingol, in the, in the weapon chamber. We don't know exactly. That's me theorizing here. And from there, maybe it got into the hands of the Edain and was brought to Númenor. That's at least my um, theory. And what is interesting about this is um, a particular line in the um, Silmarillion. Um, from um, yeah the the war of the last alliance and uh, we can read against eyegloss the spear of gil-galad none could stand and the sword of elendil filled orcs and men with fear for it shone with the light of the sun and of the moon and it was named Narsil. this can be somehow read it that maybe the name Narsil was later given at the end, or during the War of the Last Alliance, to the sword. So maybe it is not Narsil here. So in this respect, regard, I might might agree. But I could imagine that they maybe, I'm not even sure if they are allowed to do this. Take this, and it will be later named Narsil in the show when it has earned basically his name when when this makes sense. And this is currently, as um you, as you stated, just um, a symbol for his promotion um, at this point. Maybe they have to completely cut out the um, Dwarven Blade origin of the sword and make it a Numenorian sword and um, develop it further through the show. I could imagine um, that would make kind of most sense for me.
0: And you've sold me, Harry. I'm currently uh, totally sold. I do agree with you that that, that's a perfect explanation. I didn't catch that. I didn't really even, that didn't register to me that he had been promoted. And that actually makes sense of the look that I caught in their exchange. Because it seemed like he seemed a bit surprised. And that makes perfect sense because that had been a hostile exchange between Muriel and Elendil, right? I mean, she basically accused him of treason, and then she promotes him with by giving him the sword. So when he sees the sword, that's the moment he knows he's being promoted. So he'd be a little confused because, oh, this meeting didn't exactly go the way I thought it was going. So uh, that that makes perfect sense. I'm 100% on board. And it seems like the chat pretty much agrees here that that sword is not Narsal currently the poll at 78-22 against that sword being Narsal. So let's go ahead and move on from Elendil and Muriel. Let's let's get uh, away from our royals and to the dirty Southlander, who may also be a royal, Halbrand. I thought he was one of the, his storylines was one of the highlights, and I have to admit he was one of the characters I was not particularly interested in or even curious about uh, going into the show and even through the first couple episodes when we met him again, I was not particularly interested, but now I am very interested. They spent a lot of time exploring his character and he is nothing, if not a mixed bag Uh, (laughs) right at the top, he is, he is a rogue who uh, separates the raft from his uh, companions and leads them to certain deaths so that he can survive. But then he also helps Galadriel out of the water and, and gives her water and saves her showing great courage and selflessness. Um, he has a habit of stealing things from people, uh, both to help Galadriel, but then also to help himself. There's all kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff going on here with Halbrand. Uh, he's able to turn on the charm, be very diplomatic. He speaks very well. He he basically helps Galadriel in court. Um, once all the Numenorean bullies are coming after him, he uh, keeps his anger in check, and you can tell based on the. The close up on his face he's getting very angry but he just flips a switch and he says i'm going to be charming and buys them all drinks with money he probably stole uh but then of course all of that was not really to get along it was to steal the guild crest so that he could make his way in numenor uh, and then once he gets caught again he tries to play nice but then when that doesn't work he gets punched in the face and if a switch flips he's clearly got anger issues and he just beats the tar out of all those Numenorians in a brutal way so this is an interesting character I have no idea still whether or not he will end up being a good guy a bad guy I don't think you can be so reductive as to say whether he's one or the other I think he'll have an arc um, but I, I want to get to I think the big reveal. Which is that according to Galadriel, the mark on the satchel he has around his neck ties him to uh, a Southlander king, someone who united all the disparate tribes, unfortunately under the rule of Morgoth, but that he must be an heir to that line. Now, I, as a Tolkien book reader, the, the, the thing that jumped out at me was I thought, well, this must be an heir of Ulfang. Um, in the first age, the, the sons of Ulfang feigned allegiance with the elves but then betrayed them at a critical moment, which allowed Morgoth to win a very important battle. Um, the sons of Ulfang ended up dying for their treachery, and there's no indication that there were other sons of Olfang or that the sons had sons, but I think we, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that they may have. And I think that they are suggesting that Halbrand is of that lineage. They're, I doubt they'll ever name Olfang or Olfast, but I think that's where they're going with it. Um, and I, I want to hear all of your takes. Let, let's go in reverse order here. Chris, what do you think about, about that and about Halbrand in general?
3: Halbrand is a very interesting um, character. I think, the um, as you said, um, Ulfang and his um, descendants definitely come to mind. Um, it's a pos- definitely a possibility. Um, That's another quote from the Silmarillion that is quite interesting. Um, it could be related to um, Ulfang, though it's not 100% clear. But... Um, it basically reads um and the evil men came among them and cast over them a shadow of fear and they took them for kings. so um them here is basically the the men who stayed um in the first age in Bile- in in uh, west uh, east of Beleriand and, and uh, were not involved in all all the action there so they stayed there and then those evil men that um were, in, um, in the service of Morgos then came over them and they took them for kings. So this could be also like a, a play there that just some some people who once were um, in allegiance with Morgos came there and they became kings in this region. That is definitely um, a possibility. Um, this could also directly tie to Ulfang as, as you said. Another thing, I also read it in chat a moment ago would be that he might be related to the Hillmen um that will became the oath breakers, Um because we also know um, from Tolkien interestingly in very obscure sources and um, put in some notes about them also having temples and uh, worshipping Sauron and p- potentially even Morgos um, I think it's either in the Vinyar Tengwa or in the Parma El I'm not sure but um, it's, it's, it's very uh, definitely a very good possibility for this too though in, just from the position it's maybe a bit off but there's no reason why they should not later wander into the white mountains so that is um definitely a possibility and what this also can lead when it comes to Halbrand as a character i totally agree with you what you said like at the beginning i thought well, not that interesting but now seeing him in action in luminor um there's a lot of um details um to him I also, when I did um, my um, review analysis of the um, first two episodes, I noted that um, Theo, uh, Theo's friend, I think Rowan is his name, um, also mentioned like a true king that might come back and that Theo's father um, ran off. So maybe he is the father of Theo or he is this true king or both. So um I can definitely see potential connection there. We see also his, um, what you call it, a talisman that he wears with his little um, pouch. And uh, on it, we see like a bird or something and a person with a crown on it. So that definitely is, was what brought me to the direction of thinking, maybe he is the descendant of this king um, uh, Rowan was speaking of. and um further on the on a shot um uh, in in the in the village tierra i think um it should be it we also saw one one um yeah it looked like a great eagle or something eating like a person <laughs> so um maybe this is also kind of related to this talisman so there are a lot of interesting hints again um what this um could be and then another thing i thought about was um, to connect even further to theo he found this sword and we saw it basically consuming the blood of Theo for a moment from his wound at his, at his hand. And he also mentions like a blood oath to Morgos. Um, so maybe there is also a connection between him, the sword, this blood oath, and so on. So um, yeah, I find the setup very um, <laughs> fascinating. A lot of um, reason to speculate um, about it. And also, yeah, some people at the beginning or from the from the early trailers, he felt like um, an... Um, like like a like an Aragorn style um, person, but if you now look at him, he's basically the exact opposite of an Aragon. He's he's definitely not noble. He is, as you called him, like a rogue scoundrel. Um, he um he's he's not caring for others. Um, he lets the people uh, die on on this boat. This is a thing Aragorn would never do. Like that's com- the complete opposite of him. But though. In a way, <laughs> it makes them also very interesting here in this um, construction, especially with um, Galadriel. And so, I think this, like Galadriel, some it was also discussed um, online a lot. If she, uh, people call her like a Mary Sue, but I think what makes her not a Mary Sue is that she's very bad at um, um, at, at diplomacy, at reading people, kind of. Even though that I know it, it's probably not what we find in the books, but. That is how they portray her and um, at making friends, basically. And now she makes friends with this guy who's and thinks he can maybe help her out. And this could maybe have severe consequences in the end that you ask exactly this guy, because she's so bad at reading people in a way um, that I feel like that is a very interesting setup to put Galadriel and Halbrand together and (laughs) do stuff together. It's very curious how this um, turns out.
1: Harry, do you want to go first?
2: no uh sure yeah uh i think hal brand is most interesting for me in that he is probably one of the most gray characters we've seen in a tolkien adaptation so far um in that he is clearly having this internal battle between light and dark you know i, I talked about this on twitter the other day but if you contrast the scenes of him sitting at the table with the numenorean uh, smiths and then later when he's in the cell there's something in his eyes that change and it's like he's trying to push that darkness down but after he lets the darkness and the anger and the violence out i think all that's left for him is sadness and i i agree with chris i think it would be very interesting if he were um theo's dad i think that would set up a really interesting plot because that then raises me the question okay i'm absolutely sure one of them is going to become a ringwraith but I don't know which one. So if they were related, that would add an extra layer of kind of mystery to work through. I think the other thing is as well, that I think he is in many ways the anti-Aragorn, but I don't consider it from the film perspective, obviously, because in the film, Aragorn is much more troubled by his destiny. You know, he has to work through it. Whereas book Aragorn is much more, you know, kind of, I know what I have to do. Yes, I have to go on this quest to achieve my goal. But fundamentally he doesn't doubt that he is right to rule fundamentally he doesn't doubt that he should be where he is i think so in that way halbrand is kind of the antithesis of him i also think it's interesting that in many ways the line between galadriel and halbrand about we could redeem both our bloodlines for me brings back this idea that the show is not portraying the elves as perfectly good characters you know in the same way Celebrimbor in episode two said, you know, it was our kind that brought water to these shores. I think Galadriel realizes that the legacy of the Noldor in Middle-earth is one of violence, blood, domination, even if you look at how they dealt with the Teleri and the Nandor, you know. So I think it's really interesting that in terms of Galadriel's character de- development, Halbrand may be in many ways about Galadriel seeing her own flaws reflected in him And actually finding ways to build past that whether it's through finding peace as he suggests at the start of the episode or whether it's through family if he's perhaps lost his family this is where we get into you know kind of when's kelleborn perhaps appearing in season two i would suspect so i think it's really interesting the way they've set these two up because i i like everyone else was very skeptical in episode um two when he was introduced but the more I saw through episode three, the more I thought he's a fantastic foil to Galadriel, but I'm also really invested in his journey as well.
1: Yeah, well, the two of you really <laughs> covered pretty much uh, everything about Halbrand. Uh, so I will have to say that. Um, so, so today we had a chat in our fellowship chat. Um, I, I propose calling Halbrand Darth Aragorn or Darth LSR. <laughs> because he definitely seems seems like like the opposite. Like, w- what if um, Aragon went, went evil in a way? So a similar destiny, at least from what we are hinted at. But his personality goes one eighty, and he moves moves through life like that. Um, he definitely feels very roguish, but he does have this lost king backstory, at least from from what we are given but <laughs> one of the most prevailing theories i'm so fearful that it's it's going to come true even though i really don't want it to be true and i hope it's not and i don't think it is based on what we've gotten here that he is sauron and if he ends up being sauron i i don't know how that's going to make sense because they're giving this amazing backstory now they're giving so many cool hints uh as you guys mentioned the connection to theo and that king that's uh, supposed to be, that they're, they're hoping that we'll come back at some point and unite the Southlanders and freedom from the elves and all that. Um, there is so much potential there, and if Halbrand ends up being Sauron, I don't know, I I would I think it will kind of defeat all what they're building now, especially when you consider the fact that in some of his uh, interviews, Charlie Vickers, the actor who portrays Halbrand, said that he he sees a lot of He's a, a lot of Halden's character. Uh, he sees a lot of similarities with um, Beren, Turin, and Boromir. Um, it's kind of hard to put their connections between all three characters, but it's kind of uh, an interesting group to put all three of them together. Um, so if he sees himself as one of those three characters, I, him being Sauron doesn't add up. So to move on to the theories about him being uh, a king, uh, I think that would be very cool, and my, my theory and my hope is that he will end up being at least one of the Nazgul, but I think he could end up being Witch King, though then again it was said that uh, Witch King, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it, it is so that he was supposed to be Numenorian, like a Dark Numenorian. So Sorry. one of you guys mentioned, I'm not sure whom, um, that Dark Numenorians had this... Uh, had this history of um, going to the middle people and becoming their rulers. So um, from from the start, when we had very little uh, information about Halbrand, uh, I always felt that he was one of the Black Numenorians, perhaps from one of the Numenorean colonies, which is also something we haven't dealt in the show yet. So it's a good question what's happening with that. Do they have any colonies? Because if so, um, I would... My sort of theory would be that he's maybe one of those but then again there's this connection to the Southlanders to the Easterlings from the First Age the followers of Morgoth and all the clues that he dropped in this episode about his his backstory, I think they they did a really good job of setting up the mystery because even if you like, for example if you look at the chat (laughs) there's like 10 different theories at least on who he is which is great, which is good for the show and they definitely succeeded in in that uh, because that was obviously one of their goals so i like him I, I, he's super charismatic i love him in his in his, i'm i'm sold on him as a character in this episode 100% i'm just uh, i'm i'm curious and kind of worried about his character arc the only bad thing for his character arc is if he for me personally is he if he ends up being sauron in the end i think he will end up being as one of the fallen men perhaps also that uh, good, another good theory is that he will be the king of the that he wound up being the King of the Dead. Um, that would also work. I th- and I think there's a lot of potential there, because um, Chris, uh, I think you said that uh, the there was some references in Tolkien's works, that they had uh, that they were also worshipping Morgoth and so on. So that, that would fit perfectly. He could very well end up being King of the Dead. And, uh, you know, he has been to Numenor, perhaps he will interact with Isildur uh, in future episodes, and then... We can definitely have them have this uh, sort of relationship and it would make sense then that Isildur calls on him because they helped Halbren, uh perhaps uh, free his lands, unite his people, and then he betrays Isildur in, I guess, fifth season. And that doesn't go to war. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there, so yeah, uh, Witch King for me or King of the Dead is now definitely a very close second choice. Maybe even first now, I'm not sure. I like both tiers very, very much. But great character, really. He was amazing in this episode.
3: I Agreed. Maybe um, to add to the Sauron um, stuff, um, I, I think they kind of tried to trick us a little bit into believing that. Um, same, maybe also with a stranger. We we'll probably talk later about him, um, because we have, we have we have these. We see him behind in a prison cell. We see him looking at a forge, and so on. We know right, that the forge. Sauron is. Um, looking uh it was once a, a, a maya of aule the high angel of smithing basically um that they definitely put in these references to make it make you kind of think could this guy be Sauron? but um they also i agree with you strider that they really set up the mystery very well to think mm, who could this be and there's so many different theories and that is a lot of fun i think like discussing all the theories
0: and there's no better evidence that they have created an effective mystery here than our poll. Uh, as of right now, who is Halbrand? And the results are completely mixed. Uh, 33% say Witch King. 32% say King of the Dead, which I love that theory. It's one that I've recently heard about. I, just, I love it. All the narrative opportunities there are really great. 18% say Sauron. And then 50% say Other. So uh, a couple really quick things that I want to get your opinions on before we move on to the Harfoots. Does anybody want to take up the Halbrand is Sauron gauntlet? Does anybody like that idea and want to just wrap their arms around it?
2: Uh, I don't like it, but if I were, you know, if someone put a gun to my head and said, defend, you know, a plot line where they made Halbrand Sauron, the only bit of it I like is that I really like the idea that Sauron would want to try and sneak into Numenor at some point in the Second Age, work out what's going on there you know get a sense of where he can start weaving in those difficulties so like that in theory i like i have no idea why if that was his plan he'd be like you know what i'll do hang on um i'm gonna get myself shipwrecked then i'm going to get attacked by a sea monster then i'm going to get rescued by my arch nemesis and then when she's falling to the bottom of the ocean i'm gonna save her because i'm just you know it's a friday and i feel like i should be (laughs) nice for once so i just (laughs) like there's don't get me wrong I like the idea of Sauron in disguise I like the idea of him sowing discord with Numenorians but nothing narratively works for it beyond that so I think like if it happens I'll just, if it happens, I'll just need a really good explanation for why he's been doing what he's been doing. I much prefer the theory that T with Tolkien offered on Twitter, which was the reason Kel Brimble wants his tower built by Spring is because Anatar's already in Oregon and is already whispering in And I know this is episode two chat, not episode three, so I'll stay on topic. But, you know, I'd prefer that rather than... That's a good,
1: that's a good theory, yeah.
2: Yeah, no. I, I think I just prefer that rather than him, you know, having this kind of Bugs Bunny plan to end up on a raft <laughs> only to be safe by Galadriel. You know, it's just, it's overly complicated even for a drama queen like Sauron.
1: It is. It's like the whole, uh, I, I, we, again, let's not go into deep, depth too, too much deep with that, but uh, we mentioned it last week, but the whole path that Galadriel has to reach Numenor, the whole, uh, her, her whole, her whole Character arc so far uh, feels and, and story arc feels overly complicated. And if this ends up being Sauron, Harry, as you just wonderfully put it, it's like the Bugs Bunny or, or like the Wily Coyote plan. That how how does that make sense? So if they if if, if this ends up being Sauron, the whole show is is going to stand on very glassy legs mm-hmm. if they don't give. An amazing explanation of how that plan was supposed to work
0: well even if it just so many coincidences it makes Galadriel look like a total fool that (laughs) she's been palling around with her arch enemy for like several episodes and just didn't have any clue you know and trying to explain that away in a way that feels narratively fulfilling would be I dare say an impossible task Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, and just, uh, just the whole fact that they met each other in the middle of the ocean I mean, if that's Sauron, that's he has the best foresight, like Manwehu, you know?
0: Yeah. So another theory that I hate that I want your opinions on is Galadriel and Halbrand. How Hal, how Hal, how Brad All right, are we going to get a a coupling here? The a, another elf
2: mortal pairing. Uh, listen, I'll say it: the two actors have mad chemistry no one is watching that and saying the actors don't have chemistry but i think this is literally all of us sitting at home having a parasocial relationship with these actors and being like listen they have mad chemistry so i think they're going to end up together but I don't actually think the show is doing it. For me, the most important part of episode three was when he exchanged the dagger. They did, you know, the classic Roman forearm grip, which we've seen in the trailer, they do it later. And I think it's much more a journey about them becoming, you know, brothers, you know, metaphorically, obviously, brothers in arms and what that's going to do their their relationship. Don't get me wrong, like, I I don't really care about Celeborn and I know that's gonna get me fried in the chat but I don't he's you know he's not an interesting character to me but there's they're still gonna do it obviously they're still gonna have Celeborn they're still gonna have Calabrian it Galadriel's arc in the show is very much one of going from war to peace from hate to love from you know isolation to family so I think the fact that there's really great chemistry between these two actors is you know it, it's that's just a fact of the actors. I don't think the show is in any way trying to have them hook up. But do you know what? If they did it, I would at least applaud them for being willing to risk the internet hate. But I don't think they're going to do it. No, I agree. Um, it's. Um, I don't think this will um, happen be-
3: just because... I, mean, I don't know. There was this one scene in the trailer that I, I felt like got this idea started um, out of context. And in the context, I didn't feel like, okay, this was... Um, a scene where, where they get closer or whatever. I don't think that's not where where they are going, and I, I can't believe it. Also, it seems like let me just get the poll up. Yeah, it looks like Chad is also against it. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I absolutely agree as well. I do not. I, I care about the fact that Tolkien said else pair for life. If she cannot end up with Halbrand. For me, that's that's a huge no, 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 no. If they do that, I, I if they get everything else correct, and uh, lore wise, if they do all the great uh, lore things properly, if, they, if it all ends up being satisfying and all that, if Galadriel ends up with Halbrand, it if and if Halbrand ends up with Sauron, show is getting four out of ten as another patient. So it can be a ten out of ten show. But it's as an adaptation it's gonna be four out of ten. At best, if they do everything else properly, that totally breaks for me personally. It's gonna break down the whole thing. That said, I think they're just messing with us because apparently that's something they really want to do in the season with all the mysteries. And I applaud that. If that if they just end up messing with us with this, amazing. Well done, well played. I'm gonna be happy that that's the case. And Harry also, that was I think a very good point with the Handshake that they did. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping that that's the story that we get and it's going to be uh, Against the norm in a way because obviously everyone's gonna expect them to get together It would be just great if they just end up having this Brotherly as you said metaphorical relationship, please No <laughs> That's yeah. my short answer <laughs> to
3: this. Please. No also write a strongly worded letter to, to, to Amazon it... then <laughs> oh,
0: I'll I'll sign on to that letter. So send me a copy. (laughs) Uh, I want to move us along because I don't want to end this conversation without having touched on the Harfoots. Uh, We are running a little long. So um, just give me, give me your brief thoughts about the the Harfoot scenes that we, that we got in episode three. Uh, I think that there were some really interesting and revealing moments about their culture and the way that they function as nomads. They have really uh, a brutal, brutal tradition of, leaving people behind which stands in such stark contrast to what we heard nori's mother say in the Mm. first two episodes um we harfoots have each other that's what defines them their community they have each other and yet having each other doesn't stop them from just like you know chewing off the the leg that is limping and leaving it behind so they can keep moving forward you know they they will leave people behind um and that's just i have complicated feelings about it 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 I don't know how i feel about them as a community uh in light of that there are certainly arguments to be made that it makes sense and all that i want to hear about that from you but i just i want to touch on the fact that it is a very complex tradition that they have and the way that they deal with probably the guilt that arises from that tradition which they probably deem a necessity you know they honor the people that they leave behind by remembering them um which I, i think is a way of assuaging their guilt it's a very complex element to their culture so give me your brief thoughts on that Harry let's start with you
2: yeah I mean I think the half have been one of the strongest elements of this show I I always thought it was a you know a bit of a genius stroke of the showrunners to bring a culture that could embody so many of Tolkien's themes into the show um as for I'll break it down into that part you raised and then talk about some of the specific events as for that element of their culture I actually think it 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 is. I don't even like the word brutal. It's very practical. If you're a migratory culture and you are constantly in danger from the big folk, from animals, from whatever, there is going to be a sort of uh, utilitarian approach to life. But also from what they were actually saying, when people were left behind in inverted quotes, it was a landslide. It was a snowstorm. It was someone getting stung to death. By bees so i think it's less a case that they're left behind in a callous way but it's like when there is literally nothing else to be done they cannot stop the caravan to do that but also one of uh well, the people i was speaking with on twitter was saying well actually when you look at hobbit culture you know several thousand years down the line we think of it as a very kind of wholesome culture but there's still class dynamics within hobbit culture think about the ways in which bilbo is regarded by the rest of the shire i think there's a there's an extent to which sometimes we can read hobbit culture in a very flat way and i think it's important to recognize that tolkien in the same way as he writes about other cultures you know hobbits are not a monolith and there are there are there is still going to be those dynamics at play as for the events of this episode i mean first of all just megan richards had very few lines this episode but her non-verbal acting when they were reading out the names of her family dying just broke me inside and i i i think she did a wonderful job and i think everything about the half-foot scenes really worked for me i like that we're, that we're getting that aspect of the pagan culture with the celebration of almost a harvest festival you know the masks representing animals and predators um i think lenny henry's knocking it out of the park i i feel engaged every time he he's on the screen i think with the stranger we didn't necessarily get any closer to an answer but i've now reached a point with the stranger and i don't know if you guys have gone on the same journey I'm no longer desperate to know who he is. Not because I don't care, but because I'm just really enjoying the scenes. And so I'm not sitting there going, oh, just tell me who this guy is. I'm actually sitting there going, what I really care about is the way he's interacting and at times conflicting and at times helping with Nori and the rest of the Harfoots. So, uh, again, I don't think the Harfoots have had a bad scene across the three episodes. I think they continue to be strong. And, um, yeah, just a, a real highlight of the episode for me personally. Okay. Um... Yeah,
3: also um, I fully agree with um, Harry. Um, it's really a strong part in the show, The Half so far. I like them um, quite a lot and found this um, episode three relatively interesting and especially I also found the reaction of the audience very interesting because I also got many comments um, on my channels um, that it, f- it felt so, so cruel that they let people, it uh, seems to leave people behind um, and so on but um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's interesting. It gives, it gives this Hobbit culture an interesting twist in, in a way, though, um, as Harry pointed out, there are, for, of course, potential reasons why they um, would do this. And um, I thought about maybe it seems like they are always wandering and everything they do is kind of on a, like, they're very... I don't know. Focused on let's call it destiny, fate, or something that seems to be definitely a thing. He has this book. Everything is recorded. Something happens. It's in the book. Or oh, no, the hunters um, came on early this this time. So um I, f- I could imagine that the the path they are wandering on is basically a, a circle, and so that their culture um, also evolves around this particular um, circle. And they, when things happen, they potentially accept it as as, as fate that this had to be happen. Uh, like this, and of course they re- record their their loss. And I agree on this heartbreaking scene with Poppy, um, really strong. And so I would potentially um think about that. The 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 like it makes kind of sense um, from from this from this perspective and establishing um the hoods like this. Like we also have the stars, which also are like um very. Or in general objects in, 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 the, in the sky are always on a, on a circle if that makes sense like sun and moon rotating the stars are moving in a certain way and so on so it kind of i could definitely see this theme that everything is they're connected to it and um find that very um fascinating detail now the these later the stranger comes into this and um breaks things apart a little bit though in, in a way, he also looks at maps and at the stars and star constellation and again, kind of connects to this, um, to, to, to all of this again, which I find theme-wise uh, very, very interesting that he's strange. But in this particular part, he seems to be um, familiar with with them because um, they, the Hobbits seem to have records of, of stars and star constellations as well. And... Um, in this context, that um, yeah seems seems just. Uh, and I really like what what they are doing. That the whole world building is really um fascinating, and um, so far really also one of the strongest parts. Like there's a lot to discover there. I like their proverb that they are um, putting out again, which is all related about this whole car uh, card culture that they have. It's um it's it's really really fascinating um to see. Like it it feels if it, it's really, really thought out, like it felt like a lot of world building effort went into this particular part. And even though um, it might seem strange that they leave somebody behind, I could could imagine that this will be a topic in the next few episodes. Again, when we see the Harfoots and we learn more about and we'll be maybe surprised um, what, what um, there is about. In addition, um, when it comes to the stranger, I also recently spoke uh, spoke with um, uh, with Voice of Geekdom on my channel. And he had a theory and had basically the same theory. There is like um, the poem book called um, uh, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and there's a poem in it about the men in the moon, which might reference um, Tilion, um the Maya who guides the moon. And in this poem the men of the moon falls down like a meteor on the earth and then um, things um, happen there. Um, and this is basically the, the idea behind these poems is that they are Hobbit folklore. So we could maybe witness here how this poem basically the folklore behind it came to be. I find that a very interesting um, thought in this context. So very curious what they do with this so far. I really uh, enjoyed my time with Harfuz.
1: Yeah, so a very cool thing that uh, the show is doing and I guess they have to is they're really trying to give us a sense and depth of different cultures, and so far they're doing a really good job, and surprisingly enough, are definitely for myself as well, a very fun storyline, even though I have a lot of questions about the background on the storyline, I I really like it on its surface, at least. Um, The actors are doing a pretty good job, and uh, Harry put it very well, Um, I definitely care about who stranger is but i'm not in a I, i'm not in a hurry to learn the identity so far like they should continue with this i hope they will continue with the slow burn type of storytelling yeah let let us wait for it give us more stuff they're playing it very very well so far the mystery around him and his interaction it's it's very nice like with and the actor is doing such a great job because he said like what five words so far four or five words and he conveyed so much with his eyes, with his face, the movement, the body language, yeah, he's doing a very well very good job, but to go back to to harfoot's uh it's very strange what they're doing, that whole concept of leaving someone behind, are they are they not i mean there was the, we we did have that moment of tension what or kind of tension uh perhaps some foreshadowing or something uh where um What's his name? L- Largo? Yeah. Largo? Yeah. Uh, they're worried that they're going to be left behind because they will be at the end. And so they're legitimately worried about being left behind. So I don't know what's happening there. That is a bit unusual for the Hobbits. But yeah, I don't know. But another thing I want to mention, uh, they mentioned that they're going to the Grove. So what I'm wondering is my, my perhaps my biggest question is, this is not is this like a tri- one tribe or like one part of one one big larger tri- tribe or something? Like that? Because that's that's like fifty, maybe maybe let's say one hundred of them. Though we didn't see that that many for sure on the screen. Are they all? Um, I, what I'm wondering is, are there you know a thousand caravans going around Ravanion and like this whole area or like throughout Middle Earth, and uh, once a year. At some point uh, every year, they need to converge at this one point. So I'm wondering if this uh, Grow mention um, that they made, is that maybe the hint towards something like that, because that's going to be very interesting. I think that's maybe where their uh, storyline may be going. But then again, they are completely original uh, storyline, so who knows.
0: Maybe it's just a far, Harfoot
2: Burning Man where they all meet up and just party for a while. So I don't. Well, I mean, hopefully, no one minds. If I talk, hopefully, no one minds if I talk about something that's been said by actors in interviews. But um they talked about the fact that they have an apple orchard that's very sacred to them, and that if you look at the details on the costuming, you'll find apple seeds either sewn into the lining, or there are sometimes where they're not seen, they're in their pockets, and those are in remembrance of their dead and and their you know and their, and their family members, and so I think this grove or orchard wherever they're heading has some significance to them in a kind of you know spiritual might be overdoing it but it's a very precious place to them and i think we've seen in the trailers a shot i mean obviously actually i can't believe i've forgotten it but in the super bowl trailer what was our last um you know ever shot? it was nori and the stranger holding hands and we've seen in subsequent trailers that she's handing him an apple And so I wonder whether this is kind of where our end of season one arc is taking to us, that when we get to this grove, this orchard, it will be the end of a journey. And I just want to give a shout out to Bear McCreary's soundtrack, because if you listen uh, to the track, The Wise One, which I assume is is the stranger's theme in many ways. You get elements of pop, uh, Nori's theme thrown in there. You get elements of the wider Harfoot theme, but it also has a very bittersweet tone. And I do wonder where we're heading at the end of the season is perhaps when we get to this grove, that's when there's this separation between the Harfoots and the stranger because they've reached their natural conclusion point. But I, I agree with you, Shire. I do think it's very interesting to wonder whether there are other caravans of Harfoots out there and maybe this is a place they all congregate, but also, then again, it's one of those things with they're probably not going to have a hundred Harfoot extras in the show, so it might just not be something we see um, just hinted at, perhaps.
0: Well, and I do like, and and we'll end on this note, I do like the way that the Harfoot community, their tradition of the way they deal with having to leave people behind, how that's built into their culture, the way it contrasts with Nori's own personality. Uh, I think, you know, to simplify it, think of the three musketeers all for one and one for all. Well, the, the Hartford norm is one for all, it, meaning, Hey, if we got to excise someone for the good of the community, that person's going to make that sacrifice. That that's what we do, but we don't do all for one. You know, we're not all going to band behind the individual to carry him along. We're not going to sacrifice the group for the one. We don't do that. And Nori is kind of more in line with that. Like, she's the full three musketeers motto you know she gets the 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 one for all bit sure but she also thinks hey we should band together and if maybe take a risk for something better for the community um and really when she's talking about all for one when i say that it's really about family it's like we need to stick with each other and i think that that's going to be a source of tension between her and the harford community and you see it starting already and i think that's going to build and build and i'm really interested to see where that goes without um, belaboring that that point any longer I think we do have a couple callers on the line so I want to get to that um, Kyle can you loop those folks in all right well I know we had a couple people who were interested so if uh, if you're out there and you submitted a request to come on the line now is the time check your discord because we sent you some links and we'd like to hear from you um, we can we can talk about um, I guess we got uh, another quick minute here let's give them some time to To sign on, I have a rapid fire question. Um, The episode is called Adar. We haven't talked about Adar because there wasn't much of him in it. Um, But based on the very, very little information that we have, and I want just short, quippy answers, this is really rapid fire. Uh, Last week we did a little segment called Who is Your Daddy and What Does He Do? Uh, about Theo. We're going to do Who is Your Daddy and What Does He Do? Adar Edition. So Adar means father. Who do you think he is and what is he searching for? Who do you think he is and what is he searching for? And first, first one who wants to take it can jump in
2: uh he is a corrupted elf he's not going to be maglor or any of the other named characters from the silmarillion they wouldn't do that like as much as it'd be cool for the rest of us he's going to be an original character some kind of corrupted elf um and they call him father because in many ways he's their leader and he is like a better version of them because they were originally corrupted elves themselves themselves um as for what he's searching for theo's sword but God knows what that is I, I have i have i have literally z- zero ideas at this point every time i've thought i've got a good idea about it it doesn't work with the show so i don't even want to speculate but they're searching for the sword pretty obviously i think
3: yeah i think he's a um, corrupted elf and um maybe he is i don't know was in the following of i don't know fear and once or something like that but i don't think he's the son of him or anything right um, Stuff wouldn't work out for that, and it, in my opinion, would have been much um, in, in the context of Tolkien's mythology. So, um, yeah, he might be have met Sauron at one time and um followed him, and that is why he has such a high reputation among the orcs. But what do I know?
1: <laughs> so, uh, I'd like to mention that we, uh, as, as Fellowship of Fans, had, but we were very <laughs> particular about it, it was unconfirmed um we we heard that this rumor that he may be potentially one of Galadriel's brothers but it was a very strange theory and I don't think we are really leaning into that um that would be a weird one like to to have this whole family thing with <laughs> with Finrod and then having Adar being her brother that would be strange but it's definitely a very interesting mystery and so, so for let's say a more casual viewer having a dar who is going to be uh, an elf. Um, and then we have a Sauron who was supposed to show himself as an elf. it's it's a pretty easy thing to connect that this may be Sauron, but um, it doesn't feel like it definitely uh, for for a lot of reasons. So I think it's going to be interesting. The uh, elves, uh, elves, orcs call him Adar. As you said, it means father. So it's. I think he's going to be. I think he's going to be uh, to have a very interesting background, but he may be with the stranger. Perhaps the biggest mystery because we know zero things about him. Like we, I think he may be technically the, the biggest mystery of all three Halbrand, uh, or or all four Halbrand, Theo, um, stranger, Adar. We have zero clues about him. It's interesting that he appeared just at the end of the episode. And the episode was called Adar. Uh, also, I just want to say I called it in one of our <laughs> shows last week. Uh, my guess was that he's going to be the big cliffhanger. And there he was. And they didn't even show his face. Right? It was, I think, pretty blurry at the end. So, I don't know. It's, it's I, very interesting to see I what was going to happen there. In the
0: TV. Well, my theory is that uh, it's Tom Bombadil in his youth uh, when he was going through a metal phase. So time
1: me we'll if, if, if he's going to sing some, I know we have... some song, like some Tom Bombadil songs in metal style, sure. <laughs> I'd like <laughs> to hear that.
0: So we do have now somebody on the line. Before we take that caller, I want to remind you all we do have a raffle. We're going to be raffling off the art. Get your Super Chats in now because after uh, we take our callers, we're going to be announcing the winner doing the drawing and announcing the winner so you got a few minutes to get your final super chats in i don't think there have been too too many so if you uh get a super chat in you have a pretty decent shot of of getting this nice box set of gifts from emily austin with that let's go to our caller on the line uh hello and please give us your name and your comment or question uh hello (laughs) hello hello
3: my name is Sharakov. I got question. Do you think Halbrand is Theo's father after the new episode?
0: So, the que- do we think- for your question Do we think that Halbrand is Theo's father after this episode? Anybody have any strong feelings about that? I, I'm not sure I know much more than I did before. And so I don't know that my feelings change. I like the theory, but I, I don't have any confidence. Anybody have a yeah. theory?
2: Yeah, I, th- I, I think it's our best theory so far. And the way I think about it is less in terms of lore and more in terms of like, think about this from an audience perspective. If you haven't read the book, so you don't know that Halbrand is is a non-book character. You just know he's a primary character. You want to have an emotional connection to him. How do you build that emotional connection? Well, you have him be related to someone else in the show. So I just think from a kind of efficiency of storytelling, it works for me. I don't know what that would and again the other point I would say in its favor is that it would add more complexity Depending on which of them becomes a future ringwraith because i'm sure one of them is going to be so I I really like the theory, but I have no evidence for it
1: Uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you for the question. It is a good one. And uh, yeah, it's one of the perhaps the likeliest theories Yeah, as harry said, um, one of the likeliest theories we have so far It just makes a lot of sense to have him connected to one of the people and there's this mystery about Theo's father so of all the theories we've made so far, all the speculations we did based on the three episodes and the clues we had in in these three episodes, I would that that, if I had to make one bet, I would probably uh, say that he is indeed Theo's father. I'm not saying it is, but it does make, like, if you get all the clues, it does make a lot of sense that he would be Theo's father.
3: Yeah, I would also say it's um, somewhat a really good theory, so I would my opinion on this hasn't really changed a detail i initially noticed like on um when we look at bronwyn they must have been together then at, at, at some point and we talked about that maybe i mean he's relatively tall i feel like for a for middleman comparison to the nomenoreans he also very it's very strong considering that the nomenoreans often were like by the normal men on middle earth considered like gods and um in this context, um, if you look at Bronwyn's outfit, he has like a little golden, what do you call it, belt or something. And you see some sea symbols on it, like on the poster. If you zoom really in quite a lot, um, you see like a jellyfish and something like that. So, uh, mar- mar- um, motifs that uh, bring uh, marinas to my mind. So, maybe Bronwyn and Tim have also like distant Numenorian ancestors or something. So, that would maybe... Be like a little indicator that there might be more to this but I don't know it's really just a very very broad theory here
1: he is very tall that's that's definitely the fact
0: well thank you caller for your question Kyle, do we have anybody else on the line that looks like that's all for now all right well that was a it's been a really great discussion and I want to close it out we did a poll in the in the chat here ranking the storyline so far and um the results may surprise so far. 50% agree that Elrond and Durin is the best storyline. 21% say Galadriel and Halbrand Hal and their storyline is their favorite. 15% say the Southlands, 11% get the Harfoots. So um, some clear a clear favorite there with Elrond and Durin and that bromance has got my heart. So I think I'd have to throw in with that lot. With that, I wanna close it out. Say thank you to our panel, Strider, Chris, Harry, Thank you so much. Um, Why don't you guys just really quickly tell people where they can find you. You're all pumping out your own content um and i want to give you a chance to promote that because you're all doing great stuff harry
2: yeah uh thank you so much mike thanks for having me on thanks to fellowship for having me on i think both of you guys do great work and are a real service to the community so thank you um if you want to follow me uh i don't encourage it but if you'd like to you can follow me on twitter at (laughs) daily rip or just search daily rings of power and if you'd like to listen to my podcast where i review the episodes i speculate i like to have fun guests on to interview um, and we'll, we've got lots of plans for the off season as well. You can find that on all your usual podcast platforms at uh, Daily Rings of Power. So thank you once again for having me, uh, Chris Strider as well. So lovely to talk with you and uh, yeah, can't wait for next week.
3: Uh, okay, so yeah, I'm doing mostly like classically law videos uh, on YouTube and a lot of details, so if you have a couple of hours and want to learn about Elrond, maybe check my channel, um, <laughs> quite a bit of content about him. Also slowly starting with a bit of content about Galadriel and how she was uh, written and created. Um, and now currently covering um, the show mainly on yeah, uh, youtube.com slash games or dphgames.com. And um, yeah, covering the show, currently working on a, on a review, just condensing what I also said here. And um, in other streams I made on my channel covering the Rings of Power um, in a bit shorter but more precise form, if that makes sense. And yeah, I don't know else. Also other social media exists like Twitter at Philosoph Games or um, also Twitch, but currently not much time to stream there. So <laughs> mostly you'll find me currently on YouTube. Also, it was really nice having you here. Um it was f- fantastic to speak to you, Stride and Harry and also Mike. Really good job. And shout outs to Fellowship of Fans, of course, also doing fantastic work for the community. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, well, I would also like to say awesome as well. yeah, uh, Mike again did, uh, of, co- of course, an amazing job. <laughs> was, uh, again, he, he just gives you, he tosses you something and lets you play with it. And uh, it was super fun to chat with you, Harry, and you, Chris. It was really, really nice. Uh, so many great things and everybody had so many great points and angles on, on everything. Um, and again, it, it's always cool to have uh, people coming you know, from different sides because you always want to have at least some portion of disagreeing on something, because that's what makes it interesting, because then that person is going to give you another angle on something, and I think we, all, all of us did uh, that at least to an extent. Um, as for uh, myself, of course, I'm here as part of Fellowship of Fans, and you can find us on every everything. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and obviously uh, on YouTube. Uh, we do a lot of uh, I love the streams lately. Um, it's always super fun, And you know, we've come to our five minutes, or 10, 15 minutes of uh, YouTube um, trending stuff, because finally the season is here, and we can discuss our leaks. And we have actually, we had several of them confirmed today. Uh, you know, we, saw we had this type of concentration camp uh, with elves and um, human prisoners. That was a DAR. We saw a DAR. And you know we were uh, among the, we were the first ones to report that he's gonna show up. Uh, of course, the mystery still remains who he is, so it's gonna be very fun in the upcoming weeks to continue uh, breaking down all the episodes doing these lore panels, it's so nice and uh, listening to people in the first panel doing the you know the the panel for the people who are kind of new to the lore, to the Miller lore. It's so lovely. You can, you always hear different perspectives because we got we always go so much into depth with everything. We just oh, but it doesn't. This line it was this in the book, but they kind of did, did like this was. What are the implications of this or the other way around? And they always have fresh takes. So yeah, everybody, well done, and uh, to all to all of you who are with us. Please come back next week. It's always a pleasure and thank you for all the comments and theories in the chat. It's so much fun to read all of those.
0: All right, well, thank you everyone. Strider, Harry, Chris, Um, wonderful panel. And we're now going to move on and do our our raffle and wrap up.